Let's come back together and find our seats. It's good to be here to worship. This is art. I'm going to sell this piece of art. And so um, we'll open the bidding. I don't know, $5? $5, okay. My, my goal is to get to 120000 just so you know. We're still good? Okay. You all saw that? I'm holding him to it. Sorry, Michaela. <laughs> No, if I was to stand here and take bids for this as a piece of art, what could I get for it? A quarter, maybe, if somebody's really hungry this morning, right? I don't know. How much does it cost in the store? Only 12 cents, so we could double our investment right there at a quarter. It depends on if it's what? Framed. Oh, yeah, I did not frame it. So that's... Well, I don't understand why you wouldn't give me $120,000 for this. Non-profit? Charity? Uh, people have told me I'm charity before. No. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. You guys probably know where I'm going with this because in the news just a month ago, Catalan, a famous artist, did this as an art piece at a major studio. And, and he duct taped... He used duct tape, not the blue painter's tape, but I know that people here would be upset if I ripped the paint off the wall. Um, He duct taped a banana to a wall, and it went up for auction, and somebody paid $120,000 for this. There's the picture, in fact, the actual picture of what it was. Thank you, Jeremiah. I'm in the wrong wrong line of work, I think. Uh, No. (laughs) And and then the story goes, and this is where I've seen several different stories and It's hard to know what actually happened, but apparently someone bought it for $120,000. Then as performance art, went up and ate it in front of people. And I'm thinking, that is an expensive banana to just eat. Uh, But what do you do? Do you take it home and let it rot? I I don't know. But but this morning, I I used that to just start a, a, a line of thinking for us. What made the banana, that banana worth $120,000 and this one worth a quarter? Stupidity. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> what, what was the difference? Perceived values. What was that? The artist, right? No one knows, oh, this is a Ron Johnson. Everyone would be like, okay, that's a quarter. But, but this guy, Maurizio Catalan, apparently is worth 120000 But the artist, the creator, gave it value, Right? The creator who created it and, and the, the items around that creation, that is what gave it a perceived value of $120,000. Today is Sanctity of Life Day. And, and we are going to spend... <laughs> Ten cents. <laughs> now, now it's performance art. So this was part of my illustration. No. <laughs> the, today is Sanctity of Life Day, and there's a lot of places we can go. And, and we're going to spend a little bit of time today talking in one direction, and then in two weeks, Horizon Pregnancy Clinic is going to be with us and talk a little bit about some practical ways we can get involved and what is actually happening in the field of protecting life. But today I want to look at Psalm 139, and I just want to look at the Creator's view of life. And focus on the Creator and what God did to create life and what His view of life is and how He views each of us individually and personally. And I want to enjoy this psalm and love this psalm because this psalm begins to be part of a biblical foundation for why we value life, why we celebrate the sanctity of life, why we protect life. And and, and so... Today we're going to go there to Psalm 139. I want to read the declaration or part of a declaration by Ronald Reagan on on January 13th, 1984. 
President Ronald Reagan issued a presidential proclamation designating January 22nd, 1984 as the first National Sanctity of Human Life Day, noting that it was the 11th anniversary of Roe v. Wade in which the Supreme Court issued a ruling that legalized the right to abortion on demand in all 50 states. Churches around the United States continue to recognize this third Sunday in January as Sanctity of Life Sunday and use it to celebrate God's gift of life, commemorate the many lives lost to abortion, and commit themselves to protecting human life at every stage. And so today we, we broach a topic that you don't broach around family meals, extended family, right? Let's talk about politics. Um, you you, you want to have a good time? And we broach a subject that's hard. A hard in a political culture where lines are drawn and many are demanding the right to kill little boys and girls and calling those that uphold life as backwards and non-thinking as we've seen in the news in the last month. But we at Village, we are committed to honor and protect human life created by God at all stages of that life from womb to tomb because it is right and true and honors the Creator. And that is our stand. And so we will on Sanctity of Life Day address it. And we'll talk about it. We'll talk about some of the biblical bases. If you want some of the scientific bases for a right to life, um, our, our, our message four or five years ago is online and you can see that. And so each year we've delved into different things. Last year we looked at being made in the image of God. The year before that we looked at how to, to help fostering and adoption parents. And we've looked at how to treat the elderly and end of life issues. And today we come back to the value of all life. And life is valuable. Life is precious because it is made by a perfect, infinite, all-powerful God for His glory and for His purposes. And we dare not go against that. So in Psalm 139, we come to just some beautiful descriptions of who God is and how it applies to us. Psalm 139 is a text that, that takes some of the grand themes of theology, God's omnipotence, He's all-powerful, His omniscience, He's all-knowing, His omnipresence, that He's everywhere. And He takes these grand themes of theology and says, okay, so how does it apply to you? How does that affect you? How does that affect life? What difference does it make on how God views me? And so Psalm 139 is, is I would argue, and, and many scholars would, the most personal of all 150 psalms. And, and the most, it, it's written in a personal way. And so my points are written in a personal way this morning to match or to mimic the text. Because the psalmist is reflecting on the character of God and reflecting on how much God loves and cares Him. And that views Him as precious. So turn with me to Psalm 139 as we just enjoy this text today. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover Bible right under a seat around you. Please take that. And if you don't have one, take it home with you as our gift. But Psalm 139, and we are going to um, just enjoy the entire Psalm today, read through the whole thing as we study the whole thing. And we start with the, the first six verses. And remember, the Psalms were songs, right? This was some of their worship songs. And so think of this as a song that would have been used in a worship service, except this is divinely inspired, which is really cool. And and so these songs often were broken into stanzas or into verses, much like we do, right? We have different slides for different songs. They probably didn't have slides, but they had other ways of remembering these. And so one through six is one of the verses, one of the stanzas. And in Psalm 139, we're going to see several different of these that take different aspects of God's character and apply it to why life is precious or what God's view of life is. In, in verses 1 through 6, we get the first verse. God, or the first stanza. God knows you better than anyone ever else ever will. God knows you better than anyone else ever will. You could add in there, or ever has. You will be known by God, or God knows us in deeper ways, more intimate ways than we will ever experience in any other relationship. And this deals with, this takes the omniscience of God, that God is all-knowing, which sounds so impersonal and big and huge, and just brings it down to, okay, how does this affect me? God knows you. He knows me better than anyone else. Let's start to read in verse 1. 
O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And he starts with this, and then the next few verses are going to expand on that. But he starts by saying, you have searched me. You have probed me intently. You have been intentionally active in your knowing of me. And so the psalmist is saying that God isn't passive. And, oh, I happen to know about so-and-so and so-and-so. He is intently and, in, and intentionally involved in our lives in a way that knows us, that probes us. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know, when I sit down, when I rise up, and you discern my thoughts from afar. And the psalmist here begins to flesh this out. Okay, what does it mean that God knows us? And and he begins to think through that God is all-knowing. Okay, how does that apply to me? You know, when I sit down and when I rise up. And he's using these contrasts to illustrate that God knows all of life. Because you either sit down or you stand up. I guess you could say lay down, but let's put that with sit down. And, and so this is just all of the experiences of life. Sitting down would have been a, a reference to them of being at home, being in private life and what you do in, in, in your own private homes, whereas rising up is when you go out in public life. And so the psalmist is saying, you know, you know what I do at home? You know what I do in private? You know what I do in public? You know everything. And, and so he uses this to encompass all activity that God knows us totally and intimately. You discern my thoughts from afar. No matter where we are, no matter how far we perceive God being away, He knows every one of our thoughts. Now, that could be a good thing or a bad thing, right? And and we're going to see that throughout this psalm. There are things that we're like, oh, oh, I don't know that I want Him to know all my thoughts. And there are other times that that is so comforting because he knows our pain and he knows our hurt and he knows what we're struggling with. Either way, God knows us. And that should elicit a response of us, a drawing of ourselves to the creator of all things. The psalmist goes on, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. And again, we have this idea of no matter what I do, all my ways, you know about it. My path would be my daily activities. And you, know, plan. you guys have plans for this week? Yeah, you, you probably have plans for this afternoon. And right after you go get some lunch and come back and eat it together in the gym, um, then we'll, we'll disperse and go all kinds of different places. And we have plans for tomorrow. God knows every one of those plans you've already made. God knows whether those plans are going to happen or not that you've already made. God knows who's going to win the football games today. And no, he's not actively... No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> We're not going to pray for one team over another. I'll get half of you mad at me. But God knows every daily activity, as well as lying down when we sleep and when we, we our nightly activities. When we check out, God still knows everything. And the psalmist is just trying to sort of blow our minds a little bit with how much God knows about us. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, or Yahweh, you know it altogether. You know, sometimes we're in a conversation and we're talking with someone and and we start to say something and we're like, oh no, 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 that would be stupid. Ever ha- And sometimes we still say it and it was stupid and, 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 and we're recovering from that and apologizing. But we have this filter as people, right? Where we think things and then hopefully we don't say everything we think. Hopefully. God knows every one of those thoughts. He knows every word that would have come out. He knows every thought we have about someone else. Sometimes we, we have fun as a family. We ask questions of each other. And I've asked, okay, if you could have any superpower, what would it be? And someone always says, well, I'd want to know what people are thinking. I'm like, would you? <laughs> I, I don't think you would. Because we have filters that's the Holy Spirit saying, don't say that. That will hurt. And, and we have sinful attitudes. And we don't want to know what everyone's thinking. And what, what is amazing to me is God does want to know that. And, and He pursues that. And, and he, he knows that. And He still loves us. And that's a theme that's going to come up throughout this chapter. He knows everything about us. He understands us. This wording is is not just knowing, but understanding, intimately being acquainted with us. 
better than anyone else. Then in verse 5, the psalmist goes on to talk about this. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand on me. And the wording for him me in is sort of encircling me. And, and again, it's that God is surrounding us. And probably here this gives some idea of protection from the Lord. And he encompasses us. He knows us so well. He knows everyone so well that he is able to come and protect us from every foe, from everything that would attack us. Encircling us also, and his hand talks about his direction for us. If God knows you perfectly, knows every thought, every plan, every attitude, isn't he the best one to help you with those plans? To help direct you with those plans? Again, it's a silly example. I'm trying to convince my kids that arranged marriages are awesome. But... um, (laughs) Because I say, I know you so... Mark's glaring at me a little bit. (laughs) I know you so well that I will pick someone awesome for you. I'll even get your input, I said, you know, because I'm a kind father. And um, <laughs> we're not there yet. I haven't gotten buy-in <laughs> anywhere. <laughs> um, but what would that be like if I didn't know my kids at all? Would, would it be better for me to choose a spouse for them? Or would it be better for some complete stranger who's never met them that knows nothing about them? Do you see direction we, we rely on God's direction because He knows us perfectly and intimately and wants what's best for us. That is what this, this psalmist is talking about. You hem me in behind and before. You surround me because of your knowledge. You lay your hand upon me, His hand of direction. This also probably refers to His hand of correction too. That He knows us when we're straying, he knows when our thoughts are going places that we haven't let our words go yet, but are already sent. And his hand is correcting us. This is a, 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 just an incredible description of God's omniscience in our lives, of, of what that means. And so he hymns us in, he protects us, he surrounds us behind and before. He lays his hand on us, he gives us direction, he gives us correction when we need it because he can. And the psalmist, just at the end of this first first stanza, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Just bursts out in praise, right? It's like, this is amazing. How could God know me so well and understand me so well? And so there is a wonder at God and who He is. There, As He expresses this, it doesn't appear to be fear that God knows this but it's resting in in confidence and hope because God knows us. You know, one of the the things that goes around sometimes on comments of Facebook or whatever, I feel seen, right? And because everyone wants to be understood. Everyone wants to know that people agree with them. We we like to to validate with other people and we can validate whatever we, 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 wherever we go by saying, I feel seen. God is the only one that truly sees us. He's the only one that truly understands us. And he doesn't leave when he sees who I really am. See, there's nothing that I do that he doesn't know. There's nothing that I think that he doesn't know. There's no plans I have made that he doesn't know. There's no disappointment I've experienced that he doesn't know. There is nothing I say that he doesn't know. There is nothing about me that he doesn't know. And he still loves me and wants to have a relationship with me. You know, this whole thing about, well, I've done, I've done more than, than God could ever save. I've done more than God could ever forgive. He couldn't forgive me for what I've done. That's nonsense. He's known from all eternity everything you've already done. And he proclaimed, I love you. For God so loved the world, even knowing every one of their sins, even knowing what he would take upon himself on the cross that He gave His only begotten Son. This is an amazing application of theology. And really, theology is worthless unless we apply it, unless we get personal. He still loves us, even knowing everything about us. And like I said, there's a tension there. There's a tension in this whole chapter. Do I want to be fully known? 
Or do I want God to just see my mask, which is sort of silly because he sees it all anyway. And as much as I try to put on an image for God or maybe people at church or whatever, God sees through it all and knows us. And so we can let go of our guilt. We can let go of the charades, knowing that at the cross it was all taken care of. That's what it means to have an omniscient God that fully knows us. That means every sin was already paid for on the cross and we're not going to surprise Jesus with the sin we do tomorrow. It's not going to somehow negate the cross and the power of the cross. And so we can let go of that guilt. Knowing that Jesus, even hanging on the cross, knew the worst about you and I. That's the first stanza. Second stanza is 7 through 12. God is always with you, no matter where you go or what you're going through. God is always with you no matter where you go or what you're going through. And so the psalmist has been reflecting on, on that God is all-knowing, and now he's going to reflect that God is, is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He exists everywhere. He controls everything. He is over and sovereign over everything. And so verse 7 says, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I sin to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And he begins to unwrap, okay, what does God's omnipresence mean for us as believers, as followers of him? And verse 7 again, that first verse summarizes the rest and then he'll flesh it out in 8 through 12. But he's saying when he says, where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? He's saying that there's never a time we are out of God's presence. There is never a time where we are beyond His reach. There is never a time where we have gone so far that God can't reach out to us and God can't be there because He already is. And and some of the wording here um, may have the sense of a child running from his parent when he's in trouble. Where can I flee from your presence? Or where can I go from your spirit? And we all see, those of you with kids, you've seen it, right? Your kids do something and then they notice you're watching, boom. Either that or it's like, that wasn't me. I'm like, I just watched you. No, no, it wasn't me. Uh, but usually the, they'll flee. If they know impending doom is coming, they're smart enough to flee. And that's the sense of the, the psalmist is wrestling, okay, if I have done something, if I have junk in my life and crud in my life, which we all do, should, can, I, can I get away from God? Can I hide this from God? And the answer is no. No, he, his presence is everywhere. And then in verse 8, he goes to these, the, giving two opposites again to encompass the whole. If I ascend to heaven, if I go as high as I can, you are there. If I make, make my bed in Sheol, which was the place of the dead, and for them as low as you could go, you are there. And he said, from the highest of heights to the lowest of lows, you're there. There's nowhere that you're missing. In verse 9, sort of the same thing. If I take the wings of the morning, any idea what that could mean? Where does the sun come up in the morning? East, right? And so he's talking about dawns here. If if I'm at the farthest point east, and then the next phrase is, um, if I get my verse right here, and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Now, in, in Israel, you have to understand the Mediterranean Sea is to the west. And that was their sea. When they would talk about the sea, that was what they talked about. And so this is a phrase that would be to go as far west as I can. And so verse 9 is this beautiful description of if I go as far east and if I go as far west, you are there because you are everywhere. And the psalmist is using poetic language to reinforce this point over and over and over. We cannot get away from God's presence. And again, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Depends on what you're doing. <laughs> Depends on what you want him to see. But the theology is he's there. He sees it. And, and, and part of this, the psalmist is a little bit attacking other deities of the time. There were a lot of other religions that would think that their God could see them in certain realms. Okay, so you had a God of nature, so he could see all nature thing. Or the God of the mountains could see you if you went to the mountains. Then he'd hand you off to the God of the sea. And, you know, you had all these different deities. And and the psalmist is saying, no, no, Yahweh, the true God, he's everywhere. He sees everything. 
And then verse 10, similar to what he did in the last stanza, he gets, gets really personal. Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And we say, okay, what does God's presence mean? It means leading and holding. In verse 10, leading and holding. Leading is the directing. I don't know what to do. God's there already. He knows. And like we talked about in the first point, He knows everything about us. Now we know He is everywhere. And so He can direct. It's the leading part of verse 10. The holding. Your right hand shall hold me. That is a precious promise that makes no sense if God isn't everywhere. It makes no sense to rely on God for comfort unless we know for certain that God is always there. We, we, can't, we, don't, we can't have confidence if, in Him if He's only there on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Or if He's only there when I'm in Orange County and, and heaven forbid if I go to L.A. County and God's not there. But no, God is everywhere. And so He leads us in every situation, every circumstance, but His right hand holds us. And that, that word there is for comfort, that we are in His grasp and in His strength even when we are weak. Isn't that a precious promise? No matter what situation we are in, He is with us and He is there and He is holding us because He understands us fully and He is capable of that comfort. We can never be so far gone that we outrun the reach of God. Our circumstances, your circumstances can never be so dire that God can't walk, you th- walk with you through that and comfort you through that. What a precious promise to hold to. One that we've been holding to. See, distance can't separate us from God. But what about darkness? What about dark circumstances? And the psalmist in 11 and 12 deals with that. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me, the, the weight, the oppression of what I'm going through, the weight of life, the circumstance, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night. There is no hope. If I say that, verse 12, the promise, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. Praise God. See, even in profound darkness that crushes and overwhelms, the Lord is there. And He sees through the darkness and and shines a light to make a way out, to make a way through. So whatever circumstances, whatever would threaten us, whatever is dark to us, whatever would discourage us, whatever would oppress us, whatever would frighten us, God is there. And God is holding us in His hands saying, My child, let me help you through. Let's walk together. What an incredible promise to grasp this morning. And again, we're talking about the creator of life. We're talking about how he feels about life. And he knows us completely because he values us. He promises to be with us always. God with us, which we've been talking about no matter what, because he values us as created in his image as the life that he has created. It's interesting. One one of the the scholars, as he's going through this, said a lot of the tenses of the verbs, a lot of the ways these are written about God being with us everywhere has this idea of God pursuing us everywhere. And and so, and and I love that image that no matter where I am, again, God isn't passive about his love for us. He is active and he is pursuing us. And I may be in the darkness and we may be off to the west or off to the east or or completely wondering if God is even here and He is pursuing us and making sure we know His presence. So because of His presence, He sees all. The good, the bad, the sin, the dark times, a contrite spirit, He sees it all. And again, like stanza one, He still loves us. He wants to have a relationship with us. He doesn't bail on us. The psalmist didn't say, where can I flee from your presence unless I want you to go? Or unless it gets really bad. Christian, God will never bail on you. There is nothing you can do to escape the hand of our almighty God. And that should comfort us that are believers 
And it should scare us if we don't believe. But there is nothing we can do to escape his hand. Praise God. And so we've seen that God knows us completely and he's always with us no matter what. And now the psalmist goes on and reflects on God as creator and God as omnipotent. And in point number three, God made you and planned your life before you were born. And then I added what the verse is at. And he did an amazing job. Let me repeat that again. God made you and planned your life before you were born. And he did an amazing job. And so we come to, how does God know us so well? How is he able to understand us? How is he able to know our, our, our deepest thoughts? Because he made us. Because he created us. Because he fashioned us. And so we get to really some of the key verses that we use for sanctity of life. Verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And, and the word for formed there and knitted together has this idea that God is putting, intentionally putting us together and crafting us according to His will. Inward parts, if you were to translate that real literally, it would say kidneys. And so if you really want to just have a blessing, say, for you formed my kidneys. No, no, we have to understand kidneys and, and the internal organs, that represented the seat of the inner self to them. It'd be us like saying, God, God gave me a heart um, and, and thinking of what heart represents. For, for them, kidneys or, or internal organs was that. And so it's saying, God formed my inward self. He, he formed my inner person. He formed me emotionally. He formed my personality. He formed everything about me. Not just what I look like on the outside, not just the shell that is falling apart, but he formed me, who I am. And so the psalmist is reflecting on that, that that omnipotent creator. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. And we see God involved in our creation, God involved in our life from conception. Actually, his plans before conception. But from conception, we are a living human being that God is forming and has plans for and he is knitting together. That's what gives us value as the creator the artist. And that value is infinite to God. And so God is superintending life and it's all of its development. The psalmist here in in this whole section, he's describing the prenatal body. He's describing the unborn person. And we can't escape that as we study Scripture. In Isaiah 44, 24, we see a, a similar thought Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens and spread out the earth by myself. And we see the combination of this awesome, powerful God. And he formed us when we were at our tiniest stage. That is precious. And that makes life precious. We are not accidents. No matter what your parents tell you. Not one of us is an accident. And the psalmist here, as he's reflecting on this, just bursts out in praise again. Verse 14, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And and when we understand how remarkable creation is, how wonderful God's creation is, how complex, how amazing we are as God's creation, our response is to be praise. Our response is to be amazement. God created the most sophisticated set of cells that come together as life that man is still trying to recreate with no success. And that should blow us away. Now, now there's some just remarkably personal applications here because probably in the morning, we don't often get up and look in the mirror and say, that's wonderful. If you do, that might be a different issue. <laughs> um, and and, and we, you know, we're, we're balancing here. We don't want to get proud about ourselves because we're not wonderful because of anything I've done or you've done. We're wonderful because we are God's creation. And so when we, when we look at ourselves and we get down on ourselves and we're like, oh man, that, 
that person in the mirror is, is just a failure, is ugly, is, you know, whatever we want to list about ourselves, we need to remember we are talking about something God created intentionally from day one and has plans for. When we look around and criticize each other, we are criticizing people who are wonderfully and fearfully made by the omnipotent creator who knows them and loves them in spite of that. So go ahead, criticize, and see what God feels about that. Do you, do you see how the author, the creator, gives value to the creation? And that is why we can celebrate the sanctity of life. We are fearfully made. Remarkably is how those words are translated sometimes. Wonderfully, amazing. And the psalmist says, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. And we see a description of the valuing, uh, of a human valuing life because we are fearfully and wonderfully made. If you've seen pictures of the development of an unborn child, it's amazing, right? It's just amazing, you know, and I see some of the posts, well, my size child is the size of a walnut or a grapefruit or a watermelon or, you know, I don't know. Um, we're not going to get bigger than that. Um, and we marvel at these pictures because for the first time in, in history, our, this generation can see into the womb and we can see what God is doing and what God is knitting together. It is amazing. You cannot see those pictures and not know that it's a human life. You can't, which is the, the basis of what Horizon is doing, which we'll talk about in a minute. And, and so many of the groups are is let's look at how God is making us and be in awe. And it changes how we think about life. It gives worth. It's why we marvel at birth. When a child is born and the mom and the dad are holding that child for the first time, there's nothing more precious The hardest of dads, just like, it's precious because God made it. This is the best self-worth book that we can get. Don't, Don't buy one from the bookstore or from the library and try to feel better about yourself. No, how we feel better about ourselves is to say, I am God's creation and I'm going to live for his glory and I'm going to trust his plan. And that's what gives worth. The psalmist goes on to say, my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. And he's talking about being formed in the womb again, in the darkness of the womb, but in secret, that God is, is part of that. He wove us together and has the imagery of complex patterns like a weaver would do or embroidery, that, that God, his fingerprints are all over you. And they're good fingerprints. The psalmist goes on in verse 16, your, your eyes saw my unformed substance, which by the way is a word for embryo in Hebrew. Your eyes saw me in embryonic stage. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. And the psalmist is reflecting on God's intentionality, his sovereign plan that he has for every human being. And and. This is the idea, if you had a picture of a potter creating a pot, that's the same words that are used here, that God is designing us and he has given you uh, the personality he needs you to have for what he wants you to do. He's given you the body that he needs for you to do what he wants you to do, the emotional makeup. It is all intentional. Now, I know that it's tainted by a fallen world. And I know that through Jesus, he is redeeming creation back to himself. But the Creator has intentionally made you as you are, and He doesn't make junk. And He did it on purpose. But we have to understand, as we talk about sanctity of life, He also intentionally made every unborn child exactly that they are, as they are, on purpose, with a plan. And as those children are removed from the womb, as they are killed, it is an affront to a creator that gives that life value, to a creator that had intentionality for that life. This is a foundation for the sanctity of life. It's a biblical foundation. We are formed and planned by the God of the universe. Enjoy that. 
that gives us worth, but it gives every life worth, including the person that annoys you or the neighbor you can't stand or the person sitting in the pew down from you or chairs, sorry, whatever we have. We need to move through the rest of the the chapter. The next two verses I've separated out as their own little chorus, I would call it. God thinks of you often. Have you thought about that? God thinks about you often. The psalmist thought about it. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. And he just briefly reflects on where God's heart is. God thinks of us often. His thoughts are precious because He is God. And His thoughts of us are precious because He made us and He cares about us. And this is what gives life worth. It's worth enough for God Himself to never stop thinking about us. To think much of us. You know, you have wording there like how vast is the sum of them, more than the sand. Next time you go to the beach, enjoy the beach. God created He wants you to enjoy it. But just look at the sand sometime and, and, and think, God thinks of me more than every grain of sand on this beach. You, you want to talk about worth? That's the foundation of worth, of life. God thinks of us that much. When you look at the stars in awe, realize that the same God that created those stars and the space that we haven't even explored the depths of or the reaches of is the same God that takes time to think of us. All of this isn't to give us a big head. It's to show us that our worth is in God. And it's to point back to His glory and that we are to steward our lives as gifts of God and we are to steward all life around us and to protect all life around us as a gift of God. See, God loves us. He knows us inside and out. He knows our thoughts. He knows our actions. He's with us wherever we go. He created us and He loves us. Go to Him. Trust Him. In the rest of the chapter, just the verses that are remaining, we really sort of have a response to that. And and what I put in your notes is, since God knows everything about us, is always with us, and is the creator of life, dot, 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 because now we see the psalmist responding to that. And and, and, and so in in the next few verses, he goes to God openly and honestly with, with the evil around him that he sees, with the trouble. And so we can go to God openly and honestly for help with the evil around us. God is holy. He hates evil. And the psalmist knows that. And so we move from from a a psalm of praise to almost a lament. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. And he's talking about evil in the world. Men of blood is those that kill innocent life that that God has blessed, that God has created. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those that hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those that rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And he's using poetry to say, I am going to distance myself as far from evil as I can because you hate it. And I want to love what God loves and I want to hate what God hates because if I'm choosing sides, I'm going to choose God's. And the psalmist here is saying, man, I see wickedness all around me. I see evil. Oh, God, that you would take care of it. That you would judge it. And he goes to God openly and honestly while in the trial, while in the storm, and asks for God to deal with that wickedness. You see, he does something about it. He prays. He goes to God and aligns his heart. And that's the first step as we deal with this fallen world around us. God knows us. He he created us. He's everywhere. So we can go to Him. And that's so often is the last thing we choose to do, but it should be the thing that we do every day, every moment, is to go to God for help in every situation. And finally, verses 23 and 24, the psalmist ends. And the last point is we should bear our heart to God and let Him know and change us. We should bear our heart to God and let Him know us and change us. Because He does already. Are we going to participate in that? Are we going to let Him change us? And so through all this, the psalmist goes back to the same words he used in verse 1, and it's just beautiful poetry. 
And he says, okay, knowing that you, you know my junk and you still love me, you know everything I've done and you still love me, he says, search me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And the prayer at the end of all this, and as we talk about Psalm 139, as we marvel at the Creator, this should be our prayer. And at the end of it is, God, know me and change me. I want you to change my life. I want you to sanctify me. Again, who's the best at seeing the junk in our lives? The Creator, the one who knows us completely. We we know this when we have medical issues or car issues, we go into the mechanic or the doctor and they're just trying to diagnose it, right? And sometimes we try four or five things and then say, oh, maybe the engine's blown. No, we're trying things and figuring it out. But God knows completely exactly what our struggles are. He knows if we're struggling with pride. He knows if we're struggling with lust. He knows if we're struggling with anger. He knows these things and he has the remedy if we come to him and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And this is a prayer acknowledging our blindness towards sin. We're often blind to our own sin, right? The own junk in our lives, we're, we're blind to that, but God isn't. And so this is participating with him and asking God to shine his divine light where it needs to be shined. And it's a kind of openness and transparency that represents intimacy. Catch that. It's an openness and transparency with God that represents intimacy. Now, yeah, that's scary intimacy sometimes, but it's blessed intimacy. God wants to be that intimately involved in our lives because He cares. He loves us. He created us. He knows us. He is with us. We live in a culture that craves intimacy. Hey, I got five more Facebook friends this week. I just, I have so many friends, I'm good. No, no. But yet we measure things like that because we are searching for intimacy and it's right in front of us with the creator of all things. Pray this prayer this week. I challenge you to. Sometime this week, get away by yourself and say, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me. And see what God does. In my experience, every time I've gone to him with that kind of honesty and transparency, he has responded. And yeah, sometimes it hurts, like a scab being removed or, or, or a, a tumor being removed or something. But it's worth it. It's worth it to let God get the crud out of our lives for a deeper intimacy with him. You know, Psalm 139 is a wonderful psalm of God's view of us, of life that he created. And like I said throughout, we use this as a foundational passage for the sanctity of life. And that's why I think it's so important to study this, ver- this chapter and know what it says, to know that the character of God and who he is affects our view of life, that value is derived from the creator, not the creation. And so a couple of things to leave you with today, just in, in two quick minutes. A couple of ways that I would suggest we go forward with this. And thinking again of the sanctity of life. And how do we participate in this culture to support life, to protect life, to say we stand for life? One of the things I would recommend you do is go sign the Declaration of Life from Focus on the Family. I don't know if you've seen this. I'll put a link up to it on our Facebook page um, a little bit later today. But Focus on the Family has a Declaration for Life. Read it through. It is an amazing declaration and then you sign it and it's a way that they are gathering names as a way to show just how many people would support life. Just how many people would say, no, we stand to protect the unborn because they are already created in the image of God. They already have value because they are created by the creator and he has plans for them. And so I put the, the link to it in your notes, but I'll, I'll, I know that's hard to type all of that. Um, I'll put that on, on the site, so we, on the Facebook page, so we can go to that. But just another real practical way, something that we've done before, is with our baby bottle campaign. And this is for Horizon Pregnancy Clinic, who will be with us in two weeks, like I said. And this is a clinic that we've partnered with who are, are determined to let people see that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. 
That's their strategy, is to let people see what God has made and to change minds about life through those images and through seeing what God has has done, through that knowledge. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to do a baby bottle campaign. We've done this before. Many of you have participated. And there's a table outside that I think Jennifer's at. Um, We invite you to take one per family. Um, we're, We're getting some more for next week. But for today, just take one per family. And this is a great visual to put somewhere in your house to say, I am going to just take some loose change or anything I can. I'm going to support this pregnancy clinic because they are working to save lives. I have a couple slides that um, I'll go through very quickly because they'll be with us. Um, The 2020 baby bottle campaign, they're talking about changing lives, but then go on to the one where they talked about what they've saved, Jeremiah, two more. There you go. Last year, they saved 207 babies from abortion-minded women. They supported and prayed with and helped over 650 parents. They've worked with over 650 parents through their pregnancy. Since 2005, they've helped over 10,000 people. It's worth a few quarters. It's worth helping. But more than that, every time you see this in your house, pray for them. Pray for the young women that are desperately in trouble and don't know what to do and are, are panicking that go in this week, in the next four weeks, and pray for their lives to be changed and those babies to be saved. They'll talk a little bit more about what they do, but take one of these. Moms and dads with kids, this is a great opportunity in an age-appropriate way to start to teach about sanctity of life. I'm not saying that with your five-year-old you've got to go into all the details of abortion. It's not what I'm saying. But you can start to talk about being fearfully and wonderfully made. You can start to talk about the biblical underpinnings, the theological underpinnings to what we believe. You can talk about even terms with my kids when they were younger. I'd say, you know what? We're trying to help babies and we're trying to help mommies care for their babies. Um, Age-appropriate ways to begin to talk about it. In, in, In my experience with kids, you probably can't start talking about it too early. There is a too early, but if you're waiting until 12 or 13, you're, you're probably too late. It's okay to have serious conversations with your kids that are real and tangible. And so this is another way to do that. We, we as a, a church will, are supporting them, invite you to do the same. Let me close in prayer. We've gone a little bit over. Let me close in prayer as we celebrate life today. Lord God, our Father, thank you for life. Thank you that you know us so intimately and you still love us. Thank you that you're everywhere with us and there's nothing I go through that you're not there with me. Thank you that you have created us with a plan, with a purpose, wonderfully and marvelously made and help us to use that as a foundation for the worth of human life from womb to tomb. Lord, help us to have your heart for, the, for, for human life. Lord, we... Our heart breaks at what we see in culture. Our heart breaks at the culture of death, at the the way lives are just tossed aside. Help us to do something about that through prayer, through supporting agencies, um, through being a light that shows that we love life. Lord, I pray for a change in our country, in the world. I pray that there would be a change on this issue. Lord, we look to see how you work. We look to see how you will protect life in your name. Amen.